Hello, my name is Karen O'Connor and you are listening to Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood, the podcast that looks at all aspects of women's lives from hormones and health to relationships, finance and social justice issues. You can connect with me on social media at at karen.mmn. If you enjoy this podcast or podcasts in general, and you've been wondering whether you should start your own podcast, head on over to speakuppodcasting.com to find out just how easy and cheap it is to start podcasting. Now let's get right into it. Hello and welcome. I'm here today with Sylvia North. How are you, Sylvia? I am fantastic, Karen. How are you? I am great. Now, you are an integrative dietitian who works predominantly with women with hormonal challenges, perimenopause, menopause, and you've got expertise. You did, is this right, you did your PhD research on insulin resistance in hormonal changes or at the menopausal time of life. Is that right? Yeah, my, my research, I was looking specifically during pregnancy. But a lot of the concepts, but a lot of what I was looking at was how it affects across the life course. So some of the changes that happen during pregnancy, if you have problems like gestational diabetes, we see them crop up later in middle life, if I'm allowed to say that. So talk to me about that then, because there's a few things that have been, that I've had conversations about recently that are hidden impacts of perimenopause and menopause. One of them is the massive increase in heart possibility of heart problems the second one is bone density problems but then there's also the diabetes risk isn't there Mm. yeah so there's massive metabolic changes that happen after menopause and that's because when we do lose that protective effect of estrogen those female hormones we do get more insulin resistant and that's sort of where women have showing up to their doctor and just getting a blood check of a range of things and all of a sudden it's talking about your family history of heart disease and your risk of stroke and we need to get you on medication and it can all really very much come at once which can be quite a lot to take on yeah so do you know what causes all these i know it's the drop in estrogen that causes all these different things but why do all these things crop up it's a bit bizarre isn't it (laughs) It, it, it certainly happens all of a sudden, or it feels like it happens all of a sudden. But the what, what we actually really understand now is that, so people who are on track towards, say, that higher risk of heart disease, it was developing for many years beforehand. So if you are going to be diagnosed with prediabetes or diabetes, this crops up at, in your 50s or something, that was probably actually developing for a couple of decades ahead of time um, in the process that's called hyperinsulinemia. So you start making actually a lot of insulin to compensate for insulin resistance. And then it's it's sort of when your compensation can't actually keep up anymore. That's when it starts to develop as diabetes. But we understand it most simply as after menopause, that's when insulin resistance can tip over into that realm where you start seeing it show up in cholesterol that's out of range, blood sugar that's potentially out of range, where they'll start be looking at medications. To me, because I don't know anything about diabetes, so talk to me about what actually yeah. is insulin resistance and what are the problems that it causes? Totally. What's happening is as we... As the as cells 
age, it's a change in the capacity to use different types of fuels. So it's actually when you're young or maybe when you're doing a lot of sport, typically the cells, your your muscles, your fat is really good at using different all the different types of fuels. You've got sugar, you've got glycogen stores in your muscles, you've got a little bit of sugar in your blood, and you've got lots of you've got all your body fat that we typically use as a main fuel. And what's happening is when the cells become insulin resistant, it means that you actually you're not using the these fuels as efficiently. So the main role of insulin is to get glucose into the cell. But what happens with insulin resistance is we are becoming less efficient at putting that glucose away at the cell, diabetes that can spill over as higher blood sugar. And then a lot of actually before it spills over as high blood sugar, that extra glucose gets turned into fat. We're not using that fat as efficiently and it becomes a lot more difficult to lose weight. What we're seeing clinically is as you become insulin resistant, you start developing that tire around the waistline, particularly those little love handles around the, the ribs and waist, which is really classic of insulin resistance. Because we're not using that fat fuel as efficiently, it just starts getting stored away and it gets really damaging. When the cells aren't using that fat as efficiently, it actually starts to develop as get deposited as little fat, like fat droplets in other types of tissues like your muscle and your heart and your pancreas and that's the really dangerous stuff that's associated with more inflammation and and risk of chronic disease. So the middle-aged tire that we get that jelly belly that we get when we hit perimenopause and menopause yes. that's the start of insulin resistance is it? It was probably developing a long time before that. That's the problem. That's when we start to really observe that these changes are, are happening. It's actually thought that, you know, when I was looking at a lot of literature for this, they said that perhaps people can will actually start being insulin resistant early in their 20s, but the body is actually really good at adapting. So you, there might be really low levels of fat around the organs and around the waist, but it's as we get into that, the fifth, fifth decade, then it really changes. It really, it's the change in hormones really accelerates the process. So does this mean that I was talking to somebody the other day and I was saying when I was in, un, until I reached perimenopause, really, because I did a lot of exercise, mm. I was the carbohydrate queen. I was a swimmer and a runner. So I was just yeah. pasta, bread, everything. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, it was like, one, my body couldn't cope with it. My digestion just went, yeah, no, we're not having this anymore. But then there was another side of it because I was never, I never felt satiated. And I just, I started getting the whole jelly belly thing and I had to change what I was eating. Is that the case? What happens? Is it as you age, you do need to change your diet to take into account all these changes? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I love how you said that you didn't feel satiated because that really ties in with what we like, what we understand about your body is actually not using that fuel efficiently anymore. You can't really, you're not getting the energy out of carbohydrates. You're just packing it away as fat, unfortunately. Yeah. So, so it is a real change in, yeah, it is a real ch change in we do find that that what people, what women were doing back when they were in the early 20s, high carbohydrate diets. And a, a lot of women might say, oh, I, I know that when I was in my 20s, I could just eat less for a couple of weeks and then I would lose that two kilograms. And now I just can't do that anymore. And that's because the body is just really primed to storing body fat, to storing more body fat. The thing is also that so high insulin makes you hungry. 
And what is actually happening when you're insulin resistant, a lot of people don't really realize is that it's not just that the hormone doesn't work. You're actually making, typically making a lot of insulin. And insulin is, it's a storage hormone. It's a growth hormone. It also makes you hungry. So if we keep eating carbohydrates that will actually lead to this, stimulate this insulin response, it, it just continues to drive that pathway of which will be that storage around the tummy. But because because people used to all still go on about the problems with high carb diets and weight gain and that sort of thing, but there is a lot of thought around the effect of that in terms of many other chronic metabolic diseases. So it's not just about body weight, but that insulin resistance, that inability to use fuels efficiently, also has effects on lots of other tissues. Like they've been looking at bone health, bone metabolism. So if you're insulin resistant, it does actually affect what's happening at the level of the bone, with our brains, with our hearts, with all these other organ systems. So managing that insulin resistance and getting that blood sugar under control, getting that waistline down plays such a big impact on our risk of other diseases later on. So just let me ask you this. You were talking about the impact that insulin has on the brain. If we're still eating a high-carb diet as we go into many peripause, <laughs> menopause will that does that have an impact on the brain fog that we experience or we can do during menopause yeah the brain fog can be related to a lot of things that are going on you're not sleeping well potentially and just the big change in hormones is, is really the, the big contributing factor with brain fog but certainly i think one of the most common problems that women experience is they get these big dips in blood sugar so say they're concurrently, like a lot of the women that I'm meeting, that I meet, say they're, it's not their first time trying, they're not just, they didn't just decide to lose weight yesterday. They've been trying to cut down their food. They've been skipping breakfast. They've been skipping lunch or trying to just have little snacks across the day. And all this sort of just trying to cut back on eating can lead to a lot of blood sugar fluctuations. So if you have, say, a coffee for breakfast or just a breakfast that means skip lunch, you get this big dip in blood sugar mid-morning or mid-afternoon. And I'll tell you, that's going to really seriously contribute to brain fog or leave you feeling off for a lot of the day, really. And what sort of happens is when we get these dips in blood sugar, it's met with a big surge of adrenaline. It's met with those stress hormones. So you can be bouncing up and down across the day between a low blood sugar, adrenaline, I come home at three o'clock and just take it or three or four o'clock and take everything out of the pantry that I can. And then you'll be fluctuating between high and low blood sugar. So, so that, that's a really big one. And that really changes with the insulin sensitivity, insulin resistance change with perimenopause is managing blood sugar becomes an issue. You can also say that you put on top of that, you don't sleep as well. So then sleep's gone downhill and then the blood sugar is even worse, right? I've heard of fluctuating blood sugar levels and I know myself that I get the hangers. If I'm, I get really hangry if I don't eat, I can't not eat. So, but what actually is the fluctuation? So I'm assuming when you eat, your blood sugar levels go up and when you don't eat enough, the, your blood sugar levels drop and at a certain point it starts having an impact on you physically and emotionally, mentally. Talk to me about all that. Well, it's when you, one of the key things that makes such a big difference is 
like you said about how when, when you're really active and maybe you follow a really high carbohydrate diet, you typically, typically high carbohydrate meals send a lot more of these fluctuations. So the things that affect your, the, the sugar in your blood are typically starches and sugars. And whereas what's really key to give a woman stable energy and that stable blood sugar across the day is to really get enough protein foods and healthy fats across the day. So it's the timing of meals, but also what the meal is made out of. If you're just having a couple of bits of toast or an oat milk latte for breakfast uh, and thinking, oh, this is probably only 200 calories, it should just see me through. But what's really happening here under the surface is you're getting 200 calories, a very quick burst energy that's not going to last very long. It breaks down into sugar in your bloodstream. It gives you that quick burst of energy, gets you to traffic, gets you to work. But then that is quickly followed by an insulin secretion response that packs a lot of that sugar away into storage. So it's there, you've used a little bit and the rest of it is packed away into storage and your blood sugar levels start to drop, drop, especially if you're then trying to push through to lunch or if there's a morning tea, then we are feeling a lot more vulnerable to the next little snack option that's there just to give us that burst of energy. So it's the types of things that we're eating across the day. It's the timing. So when you wait too long between meals, you're more likely to get this crash. But what makes a real difference, like I said, is if you, as opposed to having, if you instead of toast, if you had some yogurt and fruit, which has a bit of protein and the fruit has carb and then fat from maybe some nuts or like a low-carb cereal that you would sprinkle on top, then that's actually going to see you through a lot longer. Yeah, it's interesting you saying that because when I was a teenager, I'd have two wheat bix and some fruit with milk and go to school and I was fine till lunchtime. Can't do that. I have two wheat bix now. No. I'm starving in about an hour. <laughs> so so that like we, we have a name for that and that's called metabolic flexibility. So it's your ability to actually use use fat to carry you through. So a teenager, they can use that carbohydrate fuel and then when they run out of it, they can just, they start using their body fat and, and they're not affected. They don't get that drive. But if you're more insulin resistant, then your body is going to try and use more carbohydrates for a longer time, leading that blood sugar to keep dropping down. Really what should happen is we shouldn't actually get hypoglycemic at all. We should just We've got unlimited energy stores on us. We've got body fat. We should be able to use that. And what's happening is you're getting hypoglycemic. You're not tapping into your body fat. Your body's just going into emergency state and secreting extra adrenaline, secreting extra stress hormones, and getting your liver to start spitting out extra glucose in response to th that low blood sugar. So you're, you're not burning a lot of fat at all through that process if you're over-secreting over insulin. Okay, so a couple of things. First of all... <laughs> How linked, and it sounds like it is, diabetes and insulin resistance with stress? Because usually by the time you hit perimenopause, 80% of women will have had a family and you'll have had all that stuff going on and all mm. the stresses around that. Is that high stress, does that high stress lifestyle impact how insulin resistant you are likely to be or you are becoming? What's, what's that side of it? Yeah, yeah, okay. So insulin resistance, it's affected by all sorts of systems, high levels of stress, high, excess exercise and a lack of exercise also impacts it. There's genetic risk factors for insulin resistance, but certainly with stress, you're talking about just the accumulation of a lot of things that have happened over a lifetime. Like I said, I did my PhD looking at during pregnancy and, and what actually happens is that a lot of women have had diabetes in their pregnancy. They've got a a very high risk of developing diabetes in the next 10 years. 
And one big part of that is is the difficulty losing weight after pregnancy. You've got a baby, you've got a family, and the stress of that situation. So it, it certainly compiles everything. It's certainly, when you think about the challenges that come with perimenopause, the sleepless nights and, and family, it certainly contributes to it. And some people, what I'd say to students and clients is about like how you can't really just drill in on getting the diet perfect or you can't just lose weight. You can't just do exercise because it's the accumulation of all these things that come together. Like vitamin D deficiency is another one. So you, you really actually have to pull the parts together. Stress management, exercise, good nutrition, good sleep. Uh, so it gets really quite complicated. <laughs> so what is good nutrition when you're coming up to perimenopause and when you're in perimenopause and then postmenopause? Or what would be good nutrition? And does it change over that period? Do your body requirements change over that period? Yes. So there are two really big important things, which is you cannot eat as many carbs as what you did when you were in your 20s and, and get away with it in the same degree. So it's the change in carbohydrate sensitivity, change in carbohydrate requirements, especially if your blood levels are going sideways. So if your blood sugar levels are climbing, this is a sign your body is not using those carbohydrates effectively. It's just storing them away as fat, unfortunately. But one of the big things that women also really miss is actually eating enough protein. Because one thing that I said just before was about how, well, to actually have a nice steady blood sugar level across the day, you need to eat protein, you need to eat fat. These are the types of fuels or energy sources that actually don't spike and crash your blood sugar. And protein is so super, super, a gazillion times super important from this perimenopause perspective because we see a much higher risk of muscle loss and bone loss with the changing hormones. Things feel softer and you actually need to be eating adequate protein in there to one, help maintain your muscle mass, help you recover from all the exercise that you might be interested in doing and really lay down that nice lean muscle mass and bone mass. The cool thing about, well, the, the most critical thing about that muscle mass is that actually muscle is like a sponge for sugar and fat. So the more muscle you have on your body, the more metabolically healthy that you can be for the next few decades. Okay, two questions. What is the correct amount of protein at any time? Does it depend on your body weight, on your BMI, and how much body muscle should you have? And how do we calculate that? Ooh, oh, that's a good question. A good kind of rule of thumb calculation for protein is you want to have at least oh, at least 1.6 grams per kilo of body weight for your protein. That means that if you're, what is it, roughly a 70 kilo woman aiming for about 100 plus grams of protein a day. But then if you're much on the smaller side and you're trying to gain weight, say that there's a risk of osteoporosis, then going as high as two grams per kilo, double your body weight essentially in grams of protein. Is, is an awesome goal. So there isn't really a ceiling with protein. It's just the, the ceiling usually naturally comes with what actually we, we can comfortably eat because protein is so filling. So there, there are really few downsides of eating too much protein because it's quite hard to do, but many downsides of if you don't eat enough. One, because it, you're a lot hungrier if you don't have enough protein and the other things that are replaced in the diet if you don't have enough protein. 
So that was the thing about how much protein. Then you said how much muscle we should have. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Totally calculated as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. I I think my belief is that we should try and have as much, acquire as much muscle as uh, naturally possible, maybe. And that's because there is a natural ceiling with that with hormonal changes as well. And it actually becomes super, super hard. So for whichever women out there that have a fear of gaining too much muscle, you probably simply cannot. And muscle is one of the healthiest things that you can hold and maintain on your body to give you this insurance policy for going into the the next phases of life, going to your 60s and 70s. Because muscle mass is actually a really good predictor of age, successful aging. And people who live independently for longer tend to have more muscle mass. It's really interesting you saying that because I remember a few years ago, I had a personal trainer at the gym. And I was going to the gym four times a week and doing classes as well on top of that. But my muscle mass, I I was underweight in terms of muscle mass. So my BMI, because of my age, like it's calculated differently, my BMI was at the high end and my muscle mass was at the low end. And this was, um, like I say, Mm. I had a personal trainer going through stuff with me. So it wasn't, and and it's just, Mm. I used to be swimmer. I've done weights when I was younger, but I Mm. cannot. I find it so difficult to put on muscle. Like it's not going to happen. I am not going to bulk up anymore. It's just not going to happen. Why is Mm. that? Why does it Mm. get so difficult? And why does that muscle mass drop so much? It's changes in hormones. It's changes in hormones. You need testosterone to build muscle and you need estrogen plays a role in in muscle development. So it's it's a change in hormones and that's why it is a struggle. So it's certainly when we look at bone health and and people looking at the the concern of um, osteoporosis and bone bone fractures later on. But yeah, it's essentially it's put on and, and maintained as much as you can. So you do the exercise. And then the other piece to it is actually protein in the diet and, and eating adequately in the diet. So it could be that when people are struggling, if they're, if they're doing the exercise, showing up, but struggling to see changes in strength and changes in muscle, whilst it is hard, it's not impossible to gain muscle and putting adequate nutrition in is a big piece of that higher, usually I was going to say higher, but higher protein intake than often that we would expect Usually, a lot of us do quite well with protein in in our evening meal, if we sit down and have a meal with some chicken or meat, but it's often those, the breakfast or the lunch that might be something quick and easy. So like a smoothie is really handy to do for breakfast that can be high protein because you can use protein powder or eggs. And then lunch can sometimes be a little bit low protein if we make a little salad and use one of those mini tins of tuna. It's just not quite enough. Yeah, it's hard, but not impossible. Tell me, because like you're saying, if we 70 kilo woman, so that's 140 grams of, of protein a day if she's doubling up trying to build muscle. But what amount of meat or fish or vegetarian, vegan products do you have to eat? Because I'm thinking like, oh, 100 gram steak, that should more than do me. But obviously it doesn't. <laughs> because yeah, it's not- well, 200 gram steak is plenty. Okay. Yeah, no, two two hundred gram steak is, is plenty. I'm I'm I'd be impressed impressed with having having that. It's the best diet is using your hand, and I always laugh when I say this because it's just such a classic dietitian thing. As we go, oh, use your palm size as a guide, but yeah, if you have a a handful of protein in lunch and dinner, or at least three meals a day, 
where, like I said, breakfast, we don't typically have meat, but you could use a smoothie and use protein powder that way. Or if you have eggs, two eggs, but then maybe put a little bit of fish or some ham or something like that in with the eggs to get a little bit more protein. Eggs and cottage cheese is quite an interesting but good combination that can be quite protein rich. Then you will be getting the protein there to support your exercise. And yeah, if, if you're doing quite a lot of exercise on top of that, then one thing I'm a really big fan of is the protein snack mid-afternoon because that does a really good job at helping mitigate that big lull in energy that can come across. So like cottage cheese, putting some boiled eggs in there, or yogurt, or a smoothie is another really good option. So do you have a solid amount of protein in three meals a day? And quite often, sometimes people don't, they just have a salad for lunch or, like I said, toast for breakfast. And those are the places that you can really make a change. Breakfast is the hardest one, isn't it, to get some protein in? Because we just tend to stick a couple of pieces of bread in the toaster and off we go and then we're starving. And then for yeah. me, I don't like eating eggs every day, but eggs is the easiest breakfast to prepare that I know is going to leave me full for the rest of the day. And I do like eggs with cottage cheese. Totally. <laughs> Sounds oh weird. Nice. <laughs> yeah. What quick breakfast can we do that is high protein? And what snacks as well? What afternoon snacks would you recommend? Yeah, so eggs with cottage cheese, we could take that one off. So there are really three key options with with breakfast, protein and breakfast. One, it's anything with using a protein powder base. So that could be a smoothie. A smoothie is so easy. You could just whip it together, sip it while you're doing your makeup and getting dressed in the morning or as you're in the car. And, and you can really adjust it for your own energy requirements if it's just something really light based off water and berries. Or if you need something more substantial, you can load it up with uh, sources of fat or a banana or something like that to get a bit more bulk to it. Then there's dairy-based, so Greek-style yogurt is an excellent option that can be quite filling. And for more active people, sometimes you can also add a little bit of protein powder into the yogurt just to bolster it out a bit more. And you can have that with some fruit and some nuts. By the time you add nuts or seeds in with a breakfast option like that, they also contribute a little bit of protein. And then there's all your savoury. So at savoury, you can go for gold. You can have eggs, but it could be leftovers. It could be a bit of chicken or meat. It's not everyone's favourite option. Some people, I'm surprised when I meet some people where they go, I just hate sweet in the morning. I just want savoury. Okay, go for gold. Have some salmon or yeah, eggs or something like that. There's, I wanted to just touch on like intermittent fasting because mm. that be, it's a increasing increasingly popular tool for weight loss because you cut calories but the really key the key thing that you need to be mindful of is the cost to your protein intake and that's where we can see a higher risk of muscle loss because if you were to just say oh easier to skip breakfast because I don't want to have anything sugary and I can just I know I can make it to lunch if I just have nothing for breakfast and that's really common so it might be quite a helpful tool for weight loss, but if we're doing it, driving it to the ground and doing it at a detriment of our total protein intake across a whole week, then it might actually be less ideal from a muscle maintenance perspective. Yeah, it's interesting because I find that I've tried it, I've tried everything, but tried intermittent fasting. Yeah. And a few years ago, I went to see 
somebody and I did one of those diets where they do your blood tests and then they tailor a diet to you I wanted to reset my metabolism which worked great but the meals were very heavily prescribed so you had absolutely set meals that you had to have and you had to go five hours between meals I was starving the entire time I could not cope with it at all and I went back to see her after a few days she said that'll go it didn't go they did more blood tests and then it turned out that I had the pre-diabetic markers that hasn't really come to anything Uh but I absolutely could not go five hours between meals could not I did not function and I think I lost six kilos in two weeks but it took me months to recover my energy levels after that it was like it knocked my body sideways completely sideways yeah and it was interesting because I did a similar one about 15 18 years prior to that just after I had my fourth child because again reset the metabolism and it worked like a charm. But even then, I lost the weight so quickly mm. that I had to come off it very quickly. Most people are on it for months. I was three mm. weeks and then I was off because I just mm. lost the weight. So there's yeah. obviously something. It's And this is the difficult thing with diets. It's not one size fits all, is it? It's pay attention to what Absolutely. works for you. Yeah. Totally. So what's happening there is if you're trying to push five hours between meals and you, your body is telling you I can't do this because uh, your blood sugar levels are being driven to the dr- driven to the ground and it suggests that you didn't quite have that metabolic flexibility, that ability to dig into fat for fuel, which is the idea of, of fasting. It, it's use fat for fuel. But when we don't quite have that capacity, it's actually going to lead to this extra surge of stress hormones and cortisol. And it can actually make the blood sugar worse sometimes, which is really interesting. I've seen people do fasting protocols and their blood sugar levels go up. That shouldn't happen, but it, it does. So it, it is about tailoring it for what your experience is and look at the big picture look at okay so I know I need to reduce carbs but I also want to be able to show up and do my exercise I want to be able to show up with my family and instead of it being the six-week express shred we need to be looking at the bigger picture changes because what was an express shred maybe at one point now it actually needs to be some long-lasting sustainable strategy that actually keeps me healthy instead of it yeah, instead of an acute intervention. So when you're talking about that lack of, what did you call it? What's your word? That your metabolism flexibility, what is that? And that comes, yeah. you were saying earlier, that comes with all of us with age. And obviously my metabolism has gone, no, I'm not yeah. doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the best way to, the best way to actually compare that is, so a, a baby, a, an infant is like they, the pinnacle of metabolic flexibility. Infants have the ability to, we, we need, they need to be fed content, like basically continuously. But if they're not fed for a couple of hours, they go straight into using their body fat fuel. They're very efficient at it. And we so there's some really good research that actually measures it. Like babies are the best at getting into a, in, babies are the best at a ketogenic diet and they don't even have to follow a ketogenic diet. Whereas as we age, as we become more insulin resistant, that ability to switch between using blood sugar or using glucose and to using fat starts to change it starts to become less less efficient if you and someone with with a high level of metabolic flexibility they could go 
say if they decided to do a fast, they might be able to comfortably fast and not have extreme hunger and feel relatively comfortable. Or, But if someone's really pushing through and feeling a lot of those cravings, feeling those hunger pains, having that real lull in energy, it suggests that they're not actually being able to use that fat for energy. We have two energy sources, glucose and fat. And if you're, when as we get more insulin resistant, we do start to lose or that capacity to use fat for energy is less. So is there any way when you get to that stage, how do you lose weight and, and get back into condition? You've got to train it back. You've got to train it back. So I, I guess it, it was a bit unfair to say that this just happens with age. I think it happens with stress and with our lifestyle, with processed food and high carbohydrate diets and sugar and always being able to snack across the day, then the body doesn't actually have to use fat for fuel. If we snack across the day, we don't. It's something that, that you train, that you train by, with, say, with exercise in and of itself. Exercise makes the, forces the muscles to use more fat, more fat for fuel, more energy fuel. So it's, it's exercise, it's sleep, it's stress, and then with diet changes, reducing overall sugar and carbohydrates. <laughs> Such a lot. Sorry, that was that was quite a bit. It's like you have to change everything. <laughs> In general, as you get towards perimenopause, you change your diet more towards high protein, low carb, ketogenic yep. diet. Is that the way you generally go? We would uh, no ketogenic is something quite different. Is is a bit more specific. Yeah, no. I think for the most part, it's just come off the refined processed a really good message that we like using and that i like using in nutrition these days is like just talking about having these processed foods because when you reduce ultra processed foods you inadvertently have lower carbohydrates but yeah it's all those refined carbohydrates it's breads and pastas and the quick easy things it's the things that you can buy takeaways the quick lunches that's a wrap or a panini fold over it's all carb based so it's lower carb, but it's not no carb. So what should you be doing instead? Just make your own at home. Yes, yes, absolutely. I don't know. What do you think, Karen? Can you eat healthy if you are buying your lunch every day? No, no. I, yeah. it's, it's really difficult. Even when I think about it, if I go, because if I'm out and there's one nearby, I'll go to Sumo Salad which is the salad bar thing, but then you mm. have all the dressings yeah. as well, or the dressings are mixed in. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know. I just find it, it's interesting because I've come away from having a massive sumo salad, still hungry. So there's something mm. missing in yeah. there, or maybe there's, it's that it's, I hadn't thought about this before, but maybe it's the level of sugar in there is actually too high for me. And I come away not feeling full. Yeah. I don't know. It's in the dressing. Yeah. A lot of the time when you buy something out, it doesn't really have much pr enough protein as well because that's going to be the most expensive ingredient, the chicken. So they put in like 70 grams of chicken, which is probably half as much as what you actually really needed. And then they use like, the, to, there'll be more carbs to bulk it out to make it filling. And I say filling with the quotations because clearly it wasn't filling for you. But look, the simplest thing that a lot of people can do to uh, improve their, say, improve their metabolic health, they say this idea of metabolic health, metabolic flexibility is if you really just didn't eat any ultra processed food, then you would be doing 
nine, 10 times better than most people out there. So we can hone in and talk about like amounts of carbs and amounts of protein. And that's, some people love numbers, but sometimes just really breaking it down to the basics of going, have breakfast, have some eggs or some yogurt, like I said, for breakfast. Take a container of leftovers from the dinner you had the night before. And then when you cook, don't, don't cook two chicken breasts, cook six chicken breasts, cook a tray of vegetables, cook in advance so that you have a few good options to really quick put together a nice and a nice lunch. So if you do a lovely tray of, of chicken breasts or thighs or whatever, and, and some roast vegetables, so that could be dinner. And then you could put that into a salad and have a roast vegetable and chicken salad for lunch the next day. And then you might have some shredded chicken that you could repurpose to to make into little pokey bowls or something for family that following dinner as well. So it's the more unprocessed whole food. You will inadvertently have fewer carbs, then you can build in that good quality protein. And then we just don't feel so hungry all the time. So you're not looking for what you can pick up at the work cafe at two or three o'clock in the afternoon and whatever happens. We're just about to start wrapping up now. Is there anything else that you want to share with people? Hesitated because there's lots lots that I could share. There's, it's a big it's a big topic, isn't it? It's a big topic. I feel like we touched on just the fact that it is all very personalized and what works for one woman doesn't necessarily work for the other. So taking a template diet just isn't really the right. It's a great starting point, but if it's not working for you, then there's some other specific things to understand about your own metabolism and your own requirements. Oh, that was what I was going to ask you. What is the difference between a keto diet and a high pro and the kind of high protein diet that you're talking about? Oh yeah, I, I just really hate the phrase keto because it was just it's just this real it's just been hijacked by this sort of yeah dogmatic group and diets tend to do that diets. I, we, we hate the, the term diets so because keto is technically like something that you would it's a really restrictive hardly any carbohydrates so technically defined as under 30 grams of carbohydrate a day and I just find it such a shame that people think that they have to do that in order to get the benefits of eating less carbohydrate right so a low carbohydrate is technically defined as but under 120 grams of carbohydrate a day which is about the equivalent of uh three or four potatoes if we put it in potato equivalent. So, and if we think about a lot like the conventional, like standard diet where people might, when people are having cereal or toast and, and there's bread on a lot of things and pasta, there's a lot of breathing room for reducing your carbohydrates and getting the benefits of that. And I find it really sad and disappointing sometimes when people feel, get the, they, they think that they have to do the keto diet in order to get healthy. And it's just not the case. It's just, you can actually tidy up on the quality and lower carbohydrates. I have a colleague who did a comparison of putting people on a keto diet and a low carb diet. And I find that the, the changes in cholesterol and blood sugar were more or less the same. You, you more or less got the same benefits, only it was just a lot harder and again, whenever you, if you create something that's a diet, that's this acute intervention, it's not going to be your long-term strategy. So yes, I think it's a great strategy for certain clinical situations, but if you just want to improve your cholesterol and your blood sugar, you just lower carbs, make sure you're doing your exercise, getting your sleep, and a lot of those things will come into line. 
So yeah, very different and totally different goals that you would be trying, that you would be shooting for the ketogenic diet. I didn't know. That's really interesting. And it just makes life so much. They don't feel nearly as guilty when they ate the carbs now as well. No, no. And, and well, well, guilt guilt is, is a really an important and, and tricky word because I, I think a lot of women feel guilty about eating when they've been on diets their whole life. And you just shouldn't feel guilty about eating an apple eating some fruit for heaven's sake it's just a piece of fruit and that's what the sort of keto world did was they said they demonized fruit and said no that's gonna knock you out of ketosis that's gonna spike your insulin and that's just not really the case when we're looking at natural food so it, it's the process it's the process stuff that's a real issue is the cereals and the breads and the little snack bars that are contain sugar and things like that it's not apples and potatoes now, can you tell people how they can get in touch with you sylvia yeah absolutely i'm a dietitian based in new zealand and my website is fearlessnutrition.co.nz i don't do a lot on social media i do it sporadically so i know that you'll you might find me there dietitian sylvia or fearless nutrition yeah that's me Fantastic. All of the links will be on the webpage and in the show notes that go with the episode. But thank you so much, Sylvia. It's been great. There's been so much information. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Pleasure to meet you, Karen. Yeah, and you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends. And don't forget, if you've been thinking how great it would be to have your own podcast so that you can interview guests and speak to people about the topics that you're interested in personally, head on over to speakuppodcasting.com to find out just how easy and cheap it is for you to start podcasting. There's a download on how to start a podcast for free waiting there for you. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time.